Hi, this is Carl Kendrick. Welcome back to another episode of In Conversation with Myself. In this episode, we are chatting to Mark Wallace, who is the host of the Broken Veteran podcast, a army veteran himself, and we discussed his life in the army, um, some scenarios and places he found himself in, especially growing up in Northern Ireland. Also chat about his podcast, The Broken Veteran. And if you are a ex-military or even serving, I would definitely recommend checking out that podcast. You can support this podcast now by buying us a coffee. Go to buy me a coffee forward slash in convo with Carl. And if you want to follow us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on YouTube, just look up in convo with Carl. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation with myself, Carl Kendrick, where every episode we're talking to different people from different backgrounds and all walks of life. And joining me on this episode, we have the host of the podcast, The Broken Veteran, and a former Army member. It is Mark Wallace. Hello, Mark. Hey, Carl. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Thank you for thank you for joining me. I got stuff I want to talk about over a number of years involving yourself. But how has lockdown been, been treating you first? To be honest, at the start, it was a bit of a luxury. With, with, with the job I do now, security, I do a lot of travelling up and down the country, from sort of Staffordshire down to, to, to Devon and, and Cornwall. So uh, at the start, it was nice to be sat on the couch, just answering emails and stuff like that. But as it's progressively got on, it's got harder and harder to do that job and, and a little bit more stressful. And then you've got kids running around and my wife works in the hospital as well. So you've got just the, the worry of that, you know, potentially bringing the COVID home and stuff like that. So, yeah, at this point, I'm ready for it to, to go back to normal. And, and get out of the house, a bit, bit of freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, you know, live quite quite close to like a, a country park and that. So I can get out, I can walk, I can exercise, I can do all them things. But... I just need a bit of normality with work. I need a bit of normality with the, with the children, you know, back into sort of routines. And this stopping and starting with the, with the, the lockdown hasn't, hasn't helped, you know. And, you know, back to the gym, you know, just to get a bit of steam off or go and see my work colleagues who I haven't seen in months other than in, you know, Teams calls or Zoom, Zoom meetings. So. Yeah, I can understand. I've listened to you one of your recent episodes of your podcast, and you're talking about just getting email after email. It's difficult to switch off because emails just just keep coming all day and, and on all night. Yeah, yeah, I have got one of them jobs where it, it there is no start time or finish time. You know, I could pick up my work phone now, and I guarantee there's something that I need to I need to answer or something that I need to do, even on you know on a week a weekend night. So. It, yeah, it is. It is. It just is one of them jobs. It, it comes with the territory, and I'm used to it now. But at the same time, I was probably less likely to do it if I was out doing something on a Sunday or, or a Saturday, or in the evenings, like if I was at the gym or whatever. I'm less likely to go on the phone. And now it's it's become a habit to just have. Oh, I'll have a quick check, and then that quick check turns into an hour and a half later, and the laptop's out, and I've got spreadsheets up, and you know that sort of thing. I can imagine. I can imagine. So you served in the army. You you were born in England, but you grew up in Northern Ireland. When did you join the the Cheshire Regiment? 
I was around when I was 16. Um, so what year was that? In 1998, April 98 it was. We'd, we'd moved back from, from Ireland in 95. And we'd lived in, we went back to Buxton, Derbyshire, where I was born. And then uh, my stepdad got a job in, in South Wales. So we were all moving there. And at the same time, I was going through the sort of processes of finishing school, finishing GCSEs. And it was always my intention to, to, you know, to join. So I initially started going to the careers office in Stockport in, in, uh, near Manchester, which had a, a, Cheshire, Link. a Cheshire corporal there. And then I finished, I finished it off at uh, Newport in in South Wales, I've been stopped going to that careers office. Okay. So, 98, so you would have been Northern Ireland, sort of the tail end of all the troubles. But yeah, still yeah. want to join the army anyway? or? Well, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was growing up in Northern Ireland that made me want to. Like, I, I, I didn't, I grew up in a Catholic area. I grew up in an area where you weren't meant to like the army. It, you know, it was meant to be a big no-no. But that didn't deter you? No, I think... <laughs> What what drew you in? Why the army? What drew what drew you into joining the army? What was the uh, vision? It, it was the so I come from England and then ended up in a Catholic a Catholic primary school. So I was always the English kid. I was always the Brit, you know. Uh, it, you know, it become the nickname. It become the the way to, to, to take the piss out of me was oh here, here's the Brit coming. So I was sort of kind of identified with with being British that way just through them bullying me and then I'd see the army sort of daily you know they'd land in, in the fields next to the house or we'd be chopped stop at a checkpoint on the way to school or you know you'd see them patrolling the area and stuff like that I, I constantly seen the army and it was just a fascination with what they did and you know the guns they had and the helicopters they used and the, the vehicles I was like oh maybe that's something I want to do but it wasn't a, it wasn't probably wasn't realistic to do it from over there there is people that have but I think my mum identified that probably wasn't, you know, the best. You know, I didn't live in the sort of area. Now, the area I lived is well known with, with most sort of soldiers because it was Drum Cree. You know, there'd been trouble there mm -hmm. for years and years over the marching. And I'd been one of them kids who'd been out and throwing stones and stuff like that. It, it, was, it, it was part of my childhood. Was that just because that was the group of children that you, you hung around with or...? Did you, I mean, obviously, obviously you didn't feel a, a hatred towards him, just being a part of the crowd mentality. That, that's it, you know, it's, it's July. The school holidays over there start around the 1st of July. They don't start around the sort of 21st of July. So the 12th is, is in, in the school holidays. You know, in, you know there's going to be trouble. You know there's going to be trouble. My mum would try and find an excuse to, to ground me for that week because it's guaranteed that you'd have extra police on the ground, extra army. And, you know, I've been stopped as a sort of 11, 12-year-old in search and stuff like that. And the bigger kids would make us go and steal milk bottles off, off doorsteps and stuff like that. It, 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 it was just the norm. It was, you know, oh, there's a riot going on. All right, I think I best go in. I reckon my mum's looking for me, you know. That, that, that just become what life was. But seeing, seeing the soldiers, seeing them out patrolling, seeing, you know, or I can remember the parachute regiment, and I only knew the parachute regiment years later, but I can remember their distinct maroon berries, you know, um, and thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. And they'd happily speak to you, you know, they'd happily, 
it happily let you look down the you know the sites of the Susat and stuff like that. So it was. Did you find you probably given a, a better reception than little kids because you were you were English, you were British, or did the, did the other kids get the same kind of privilege? And well, my accent had changed then. I, I very much sounded like a yokel, okay. you know. So I don't think they identified any. Maybe a kid might have called me a Brit for you know, and then. But I was never sort of asked or anything like that. I was okay. just a local kid off the estate. Sure. So then, ninety-eight to sixteen, about the same time I joined. I joined the RAF when I was sixteen as well. How did you find going from mum and dad's house into the into the environment of the army basic training? My stepdad had been in. He'd been a Marine. He told me the the recruitment colour sergeant, he thought, just just shut up and do as you're told, you know? And I just went in with that mentality of, right, I just, whatever they say, I'll just do it. And you quickly learn that that is the easiest option because anyone who answers back or anything like that, that, you know, they're all, they're all over them. I remember so, um, I remember when I joined, and it must have been like fifth or sixth day, I did something, and I picked up something, and I had to fill out a form, I think it's called a training occurrence form or something. Yeah. And I put, I put my full name down, you know, Carl Kendrick, and the first thing went, yeah. we don't need to know you, we don't want to know your first name. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I enjoy basic training. Like yourself, I kind of just made sure I'd done what they, what they asked to do, and I sort of just went along with the flow. But I found being a 16-year-old, I was surrounded by 19, 20 men up to the mid-20s. So for me, it was a massive change from being at home around my friends. Suddenly, I was in this group. I was only the only Welsh person. I spoke much faster than I did now. And I found myself a little bit alienated because I I didn't really fit into a group because I was so so young. Did you have any of those kind of issues or was it plain sailing? I was quite lucky. I, I joined what was the Prince of Wales division. So we travel, uh, the, the basic training then was at uh, Litchfield in Whittington Barracks. And I was joining the Cheshires, so it was mainly all sort of Scousers and Manx. However, I'd travelled up on the train with, with the lads from Wales and there was probably about, there was probably about 20, 25 of them as well. So I identified with them, identified with the, the, the other lads because I was joining their regiment. So in my room, you know, we, we three or four lads who were Welsh but same as you, they were men. They weren't, you know, I was probably the youngest in the whole team. We started off with 63, 63 lads, and it quickly, within days, was starting to whittle down. And you had, you know, your lads covered in tattoos, you know, made in Wales around their belly button and stuff like that. And they, they dropped off really, really quickly. They either couldn't keep up on the fitness or they couldn't keep their mouth shut or... It just wasn't, it wasn't for them, you know. Unlike you writing your first name down, I, when they said, what's your army number? I didn't say zero. I said, oh, you know, and it's like, well, always always a letter. So it can't be that because it has to be a number, you know. I could, couldn't understand what they meant, you know, because I'd, I'd learned this off by heart with the O's in it rather than zeros. Um, Easy. And um, quickly, learn, quickly learn that that's not the way to do it. So with your training, the, the guys you train with, are they all the same platoon or do they go to different platoons? Or is it always the same? So the people you train with, are they want to serve with? So it's it's by six different regiments. We would would all be in the same platoon, all from the Prince of Wales Division. So you'd Devon and Dorset, you would Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters, you would Staffordshire Regiment, Cheshire Regiment, 
the two Welsh regiments at the time, the Welsh Fusiliers and the Royal Regiment of Wales, and we'd all just be put together, mixed up into four different sections. And, you know, I shared a room with a Welsh Fusilier, an RGBW, and a Stafford, you know, it, it, we all did the sort of the same training, but we were all infantry. We were all, you know, we were all heading to infantry regiments. Right, yeah, can I say, when I, obviously in the Air Force, the people I trained with, we were all different trades and all different parts of the RAF. So again, I think if you're infantry, you also already have that kind of bond because you're all, you know, you've all been doing the same same job once you yeah. finish basic training. So basic training's done. Where was the first, where was the first post? We do two parts of training for the uh, so you do your basic, which is um, twelve weeks, and then you go to Catrick and you do another twelve weeks of infantry training. Again, the same guys started off with sixty three. We you know we were down to I think twenty three passed out at the end um, after everyone had even been back squatted and stuff like that. Uh, and I went from there, and the Cheshires had just come back from Northern Ireland and were based in Chepstow, so it was then. 40 minutes from my, my parents' house, which was which was handy, you know. I arrived on in December and it was the company's Christmas party. So I literally arrived, dropped my kit in my room, put on a shirt and went straight over to the Naffy to be greeted by who the hell are you? No, <laughs> this is a this is B company's function. What are you doing here? And it's like I've I've literally just arrived, you know. It's not too bad. I suppose that's one way to break the ice. Everyone's having a good time in the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they were running around the, you know, the block all night, hijinks going on, water, water getting thrown around, hoses being pulled out. It was a, it was a bit of an eye opener from this structure of training and everyone doing as they're told to, you know, live in the same accommodation as the as the the full screws and the and the the, the corporals and the and the lance corporals and and. There's a hierarchy within the privates, you know, you're not all the same. There's privates have been there sort of, you know, three, four, five years and they they run they run the lines, basically. So you do what, what as, as you're told with them as well. So it was a bit of an eye opener. And when I arrived, I basically got told, right, we're going to Kenya in January. You've got three days. You need to get all this packing list ready. They go on leave. And then the day you come back, we're going to Kenya. So, so you've come from this this basic training. You've come straight into almost a deployment, instant deployment. Yeah. How did you find that? So Kenya came in in January. How yeah. did you find? Obviously, this would probably be the first time being away out of the country without family. I'm assuming. How did you find? Did it make it easier to to blend in with the rest of the rest of the company because you're away or or not? I at, at the time was the newest. I was probably the, I arrived with nine other other people, but we were the newest people in the whole of the battalion. So we, you know, they call them crows, the combat recruits of war. You know, I was the crowiest person in the platoon. It it was hard. It was hard to fit in. I'd no one just no one really speak to. You know, one lance corporal, Paul Mitchell. He he sort of kind of took me under his wing to just make sure I was all right. He, he was from Buxton, you see, and he sort of kind of, I said, oh, I'm from Buxton, he's from, you know, and he just went, all right, I'll keep an eye on you. He was the first person to say, right, you don't, right, stop with that corporal bullshit, you just call me Mitch, you know, because you don't do that, you still call everyone corporal, you still call everyone sergeant. Because you've done, you've, done, you've done a lot of basic training, you've been drilled into you, you know, I'm not your mate, I'm your sergeant, I'm your corporal, and then suddenly yeah. then you're trying to break that, that sort of, oh my God, muscle memory of, of, of calling people by rank. 
yeah. into, into this group. So Mitch, he took you under your wing. So how long are you in Kenya? How long was that deployment? Six weeks. It's a six-week uh, training. Training. Okay. Was that was, was that hot weather training or something? Was it all, all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go from sort of jungle training through to sort of um, like a desert training, a place called Archer's Post, and then Umpala Farm, which is again is a sort of if you can you know imagine Kenyan sort of where the Maasai Mara are, where you know you're coming across lions, you're coming across elephants. It's you know very sort of wild wild yeah. Kenya. you've got snakes crawling around your feet that sort of thing so it must have been in a way if you've come from basic training almost straight into deployment it must have always been like a discontinuation of of your training you must have still be in that training mindset when you yeah when you yeah. went there so it must have and, been a little bit easier to sort of crack on and stuff. i was fit fit as well i was mm-hmm. you know you come out of training you you know you're fit as a premier league footballer you know you really are in tip-top condition so when it comes to sort of carrying heavy weights and you imagine, you know, light roll infantry, that's what you do. You, you, you march all over the place. Uh, I was able to keep up. I was able to you know, carry the heavy weapon systems. I was able to carry the kit without any sort of dramas where there was people who were struggling. So it, that sort of kind of stood me in good stead with, with my corporal and my platoon sergeant. They were like, all right, he can keep up. He's a good lad. You know, we can, we can rely on him. So did you find that from, so say day one of that six week deployment, was there a difference between day one and the last day in terms of your part yeah, and, yeah. and where you fit and the way you fit in? Massive difference. We got a few days R and R where I could go and have a beer with the, you know, with the people from the platoon and they could get to know who it was and you know what it was about and stuff like that. So it was a little bit easier. You know, there was a little bit of downtime out there. We, you know, we did, we did like a safari, but we did it on mountain bikes, which sounds absolutely mental. You know, you'd have America. <laughs> You'd have Americans going past in these four by fours with the windows up and the aircon on, and then they come across sort of twelve British soldiers cycling along looking for lions. You know? <laughs> Did you see any? Yeah, we've seen lions. <laughs> I can't imagine that at all. Yeah. It's not like yeah. that's not my cup of tea. Um, so after Kenya, where are we looking then? Where, where do we where do we end so, up? So um, back to back to Chepstow. So we, you know, Chepstow was the the sort of home base for two years, and then from there we deployed. Northern Ireland um, was obviously a bit of an eye opener going back there in a, in a different sort of the build up training. Did you did you come across any old friends? What is your friend Northern Ireland? No, no. Because no. I imagine I'd been a bit of a difference to see you know this this the Brit from school suddenly walking around in in, in uniform carrying a yeah, carrying a rifle. Yeah. There was, was a, one, there was one incident in two thousand and two where I was doing uh, checkpoints in the area where I used to live. And one of my cousins pulled into the checkpoint and I was doing the chatter and I just, I just waved her on and she didn't notice it was me. It was, you know, it was just as old. It was only later, you know, that I told her, you know, can you remember that time you were on that road at this time? You know, that was me who waved you through, you know, some of the family know that I joined, but a lot, we, we, you know, we just kept it to ourselves and a lot of family didn't need to know what, what, where I was or what I was doing or, or I probably didn't care, you know, but it was easy not to tell them. So when did you leave Northern Ireland? 2002, was it? Or when did you leave? No, no. So that was just a six month that I did okay. in 1999. We did a six month okay. uh, in Northern Ireland. And then after that, we back to Chepstow for a few months and then out to Cyprus for two years. So when 9-11 hit, were you in Cyprus then, were you? Or were you... Well, yeah, yeah. So from Cyprus, you also go and do training tours. So we did mm. uh, four months in the Falklands and we did 
a, a six-weeker in Jordan. So we were in Jordan when 9-11 happened. A sort of funny story around that. We'd made up a rumour. So at this point now, I'd left the infantry company and I'd joined the reconnaissance platoon. So I'd sort of shined when I joined the infantry company in Kenya, in the Northern Ireland train and stuff like that, and, and in the Falklands. And they said, right, you know, they're looking for candidates for the recce platoon. You know, you have to go through a selection to get in there. But then, you know, it's a it's a more grown up. You work in four man teams. You have better equipment. You're the sort of eyes and ears of the battalion when you're on operations. Definitely more up my street. Absolutely, you know, I love my time in the, my whole time in the record team. But so we were out in in Jordan. We were doing reconnaissance drills and stuff like that. We basically took ourselves off into the desert, set up a little a little camp um, with the platoon and we just stayed out of the battalion's way because they were all, you know, running around doing infantry stuff and we were... Just chilling out of the tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we'd made up this rumour that the Queen Mother had died and we were all going home, you know what I mean? Because we were going to be used in the ceremony. Now, it was untrue. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just something to see how far we could spread this. Anyway, our, our boss got involved. He got in trouble. Oh, really? Um, you know, because he was spreading the rumour as well. And then we, you know, I was the radio up for the platoon and we got a call to say, right, everyone in, there's been, you know, there's been an incident. We all need to sort of head back into the main camp. We asked what it was and said, oh, planes have been flown into, a plane at this point had been flown into uh, to one of the Twin Towers in New York. And as somewhere I'd been, I was there when I was a kid, when I was like 13, I'd been over there. And I'd been up in the in the towers and stuff like that, so it was a bit of a whoa. This is, and then we were like, nah, this is this is someone else making up another room, you know. So we weren't convinced until I think it was the quartermaster command was like, right, get back here, you know, now. So anyway, we all piled back to to the camp, the, the sort of battalion's main camp, and the, you know, everyone headed to the cookhouse. You know, people were hanging off the, the sort of rafters of the tent trying to get a, a view of the TV. And we stood up on the tables and, you know, we seen the second plane hit and it was just like, wow, this is this is real, you know. And at the time, we were probably, the, you know, the furthest deployed troops in in the sort of in the in the region you know we were we were we were in jordan we were a stone's throw away from iraq and we were like oh it's it's going off big time now and then the rumor started we're going we're being deployed you know and stuff like that it, it wasn't we were going back to cyprus but it was certainly a sort of you say it must have been a it must have been sort of i imagine the rumors would have been doing a bit of hype because obviously when you, you join you do I suppose somewhere in your subconscious want to see a bit of action, you know, and yeah. actually being that close to the to what would turn out to be the hot zone, you know, in maybe a, a year's time, I suppose that that hype must boil over into into tension in the in the in the troops today or or more excitement, mm-hmm. more like it's it's gonna happen. We're we're gonna get our shot, we're gonna get our opportunity. I think some of the older guys that maybe been to Bosnia were a little bit more you know, reluctant and, and a little bit like, it's not going to stop being stupid. It was more of a younger sort of corporals, lance corporals, privates that, you know, we were, we're, we're up for it, you know, up for this, you know, challenge of what potentially we, we could be doing. So was it, it, was it disappointment when you went back? Uh, it, disappointment, but also 
a kind of inevitability, you know what I mean? We're, we're just a, a normal line infantry regiment, you know, it's, you could imagine the sort of SAS, SBS being deployed out to these places, but obviously in the initial hotspot was, was Afghanistan, that's mm. where they started, started going first. And, you know, there was never sort of rumours of, of, us, of us going out there at, at that point anyway. So yeah, back to Cyprus and back into the normal drills. Of, um, we were in Decalia. So from there, you deploy up onto the Green Line and, and we checkpoint of Black Knight where, you know, we do a month off and three months off. Three months on, mm. sorry, a month on, three months off there and just doing normal drills. We had a you know a couple of run-ins with the Turks, but nothing sort of anything special. So after Cyprus, where do we find this recce? Yeah, so still part, still part of the recce platoon, and we we end up back in the UK, and we end up in Bulford, which is on the edge of Salisbury Plain. The reconnaissance tunes goes from a light roll to an armoured roll, so we get little uh, three-man tanks, little scimitars, and we start you know start our training, start our training on that. We then get told we're doing a a tour of Northern Ireland, so we go back out to Northern Ireland for another six months there. So we did the build-up train for that. Then we come back and we get told that we're going to be the ready battalion. You know, we're going to be the ones deploying. But first, we've got to get through Op Fresco, which is the fire strike. Yeah, I did, I did that. I was in... This is 2004 then. Was it 2004? 2003. 2003. Because yeah. I was in Harlow. And as much as I enjoyed sharing a gym with the other guys for, for three or four weeks, it was something... I probably won't want to do it. In fact, no, in fact, I did enjoy it because we were fortunate. We didn't have a green forest. We actually had a red, a red Dennis. And I think the, the most exciting thing we did was go to Marks Spencer's three times a day to rescue someone from a lift. But for yourself, Al Fresco, where were you? Where were you? Based we were in uh, Retford in Nottinghamshire, in a TA base there. So it was the whole of. We were part of support company, so it was the whole of support company, the two goddesses. I'd broke my collarbone in, in Northern Ireland, so I was basically a guard of this TA base, which had no walls around it, no gate. So I was literally standing out in the, you know, there was no there was no hut or anything, standing out in the cold with, with my rifle, just basically chatting to the, the people off the, the housing estate that this this building was in. They'd come along and the conversations and they'd bring food and, and it was it was good. And then we get like downtime and we'd end up in, in the, the local pubs and, you know, we were like little celebrities, you know, oh, the, the army lads are in and, you know, it, it was actually quite good. It was a good time. We had, a, we, we had quite a good laugh while we were doing it. I know the lads went out to sort of, we were near the M1, so they went to um, car crashes and stuff like that. Well, that was the thing, because we had stretched the M25, I think we had one car crash the entire time. I suspect to be a little bit more busy with the M25. But, yeah. um, I think that was also the first time I ever tasted Guinness. I think it fell on St. Patrick's Day. I was like, pound, pound a pint. And I don't think I've drunk Guinness ever, ever since. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we, you know, Guin- there were promotions on in pubs. We were, you know, we were rocking up with the Guinness hats on and stuff like that. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was actually a really good time. I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed doing it. But I, I think it was, we, I think we got deployed and then shock and awe happened on, on on Baghdad and that was it the fire strikes were over it was no longer a priority for the country no one was backing the firefighters we were we were at war mm-hmm. 
and that's when it really sort of hit home like we got told right start start preparing because we're going to be deployed if not in the first wave then we're looking at sort of the second or third when did you when did you deploy did you deploy so, yeah yeah so we were at opt out four so we were in march 2004 is when we we arrived in basra and uh, how were things on the ground in basra in 2004 Rough, actually. So uh, we went out with, with the Welsh Fusiliers. They they were part of the same battle group. Not battle group. We were the one Cheshire battle group, and we had Basra City. We had the Welsh to the south of us, and we had the Anglian. Was it Anglian Regiment to the north of us? And they were a warrior battalion. And, and Johnson Bahari, actually. Oh, PWRR. That's what it was. Mm. Sorry. So Johnson Bahari actually won the, the Victoria Cross at the same you know, same time I was out there. So we were we were getting you know we, it was it was tasty. It was hostile. Know. It was I mean locals hostile or were they good pleased to see you? Pleased to see us in some some parts of the city. Couldn't stand us in other parts of the city. Would happily sort of take your head off in in other parts of the city. You know. I know. I, I remember doing. Before we went to, because I was in, I was based in Bryce Norton, so on the TriStar, so obviously yeah. we flew, we flew everywhere. But I remember doing some training before um, going to Afghanistan. They were talking about suicide bombers and describing a suicide bomber. I remember coming out the, out the, the training thinking, well, they just literally described anyone. You know, it could be anyone. They could be shaven, might not be shaven. They might be sweating. But I'm thinking it's like Middle East. They're gonna be, they're gonna be sweating. So. Yeah, and, yeah, but I can't imagine what it'd be like on the ground in Basra. So two thousand and four, so still a fairly volatile time. In, in yeah, in yeah. The, so and we, we got rid of the in the initial sort of Iraqi army. You know that was sort of kind of disbanded and gone. And it was these militias fighting for territory and fighting for power who would you know happily take on you know uh, a British convoy. So we were a lot of roadside bombs, a lot of IEDs, a lot of just we, we had one location, old state buildings in Basra, and at six o'clock every night they just open up on it, you know, They're just mortars or RPGs or just small arms fire, and it, it was every night. And obviously we were in the reconnaissance platoon, so we were we were bounced around here, there, and everywhere trying to do reconnaissance stuff. But we ended up getting put in there for a month just to, to back up, and it was our B company and our support company that were in there, so. You're talking a good sort of 150, 200 troops, and then another, you know, 30 from the recce platoon in there as well to try and you know, calm this down. And it was more base paid patrols you'd be contacted on, or, or we looked after like the, the the stately building in the area as well, and you know you get you get hit on your way down to that. Because they knew that every sort of few hours we'd have to change over the troops that were in there because there was no cooking facilities or anything. So they'd have to come back and eat. So they knew where we were going. They knew what time we were coming out. There was a bit of like locals employed in, in, in the camp. You guarantee they were feeding, you know, uh, intelligence out to where the soft points were. Mm. Uh, we initially started off in tents, our support company, but they all got mortared. So they were all in, in the hard standing it ended up that the only shower facility was intense and it was it was running the gauntlet to just go and have a shower, you know. It was water on, you know, water off, soak yourself up, water on, get out of there, you know, and you went everywhere, helmet, body armour and, you you know, your weapon. So in that situation, 
when we talk about your mental health and, and your state of mind, is it, are you zoned in all the time or are there times where you can sort of, you know, become worried about what could happen or are you always in the zone while you're there? It's only afterwards kind of thing. The first sort of month, you just it, you're constantly on your toes. Like this is this is it. You know it, it could happen. You know there was plenty of more attacks, plenty of RPG attacks. After about a month, you, you got you, you didn't get blasé, but you just got a bit. Oh, this is just the norm. You know this is this feeling sort of ten this tension of going out the gates and stuff like that. Um, you didn't let your skills and drills slip. You know, you always hard targeted everywhere. You always took cover. You always did your sort of five and 20 meter checks and then you, you were going to go static. Um, but you did, it did become a bit of a norm. But some lads did struggle, you know, you know, asking them to go out on a, yet another patrol when they knew they were going to get contacted again. They just couldn't handle it. Certainly the lads who were married or had kids and stuff at home, but they were, they were struggling, you know. Um, how was that dealt with? In 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 the how was I dealt with there at the time? Were they just basically told, "Look, this is your job; you got to do it," or was it a bit more? There, were, there was a bit of compassion from from some areas, and there was certainly this, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You know, what I mean, you're you're in the infantry. This is what we do from other areas, and, and I would I'm probably guilty of it myself, sort of kind of going, right, let's just get on with it. You know what I mean? You know, it's not, you, you know, you're being a bit of a fanny. Let's go. We need to get out the gate. We need we need to get you know, this done, we need to go on this patrol or we need to go on this OP and stuff like that. Luckily for me, I had a, I had a great bunch of lads around me. We, we we went from four-man teams to six-man teams just to bolster the numbers of, of the firepower. And the, and the people I was with, you know, my life was in their hands and, and, and theirs in mine. And we, we just looked after each other. We had each other's back. One of the contacts I was in, I carried the Minimi, which is a sort of uh, light machine gun. Um, American or people who played Call of Duty would call it the saw. And I had a stoppage in the middle of a contact. And I'm trying to clear the stoppage and a guy pops up ready to, you know, ready to take me out. And one of my one of my best buddies, he comes over my shoulder and, and, and wipes the guy out. You know, it's it's you just knew that there was someone there. So you just when you've got that group of people around you that you can rely on and you put your, your trust in them, it, it does give you a sense of warmth, you know, and that, and that builds that there's such a strong brotherhood between, you know, yeah. that, that group I, of people. I was just, I was just about to say that it does, it does grow that feeling of a brotherhood when you start, like I said, you're, you're putting your, your life in, in other people's hands as, as they are to you. Um, yeah. And, so I, I can imagine. So how long were you were you in in Basra for? Was it six months? Six, or longer. Six months. Six months out there. Yeah. Okay. And we then did, we did get um, like a ten days back in the UK. Were you? Did you get locked down when you got back into the UK for a day or two, or were you straight out? I went straight on an, an NCO card to get my stripe. So I literally come back. We was put into a camp, and we were given. So 24 hours to go out and buy whatever we needed for for the course that we were about to do, which was um, which was eight weeks. So we we did that, and then we were in this camp. So we we'd gone from that really strict 
sort of regime into another really strict regime, which I think helped me and a lot of the guys on the course. You know, we were already in the mindset of this is it. We've got to, we've just got to get through it. I suppose it's a, you don't get much time to reflect on what's happening because you, you're doing more training and you, you're zoned in on, on that. You're focused on doing that training. So you yeah. did that. You did that training. So what we are now, two thousand five ish, is it? Two thousand five. Yeah, yeah. So we got promoted and then had Christmas at home and then back to back to Bulford and then we started our build up to to be deployed back out to to Northern Ireland where we were going to do another two year a two year posting out there. Okay, and then when did you leave the army? The two thousand eight ish or no two yeah two thousand and seven. So we were, ba- we were based in Northern Ireland. I'd been moved from the rec- out of the record platoon back into a rifle company because they were looking at sending me on another promotional course and they thought it'd be better for me to be in that mindset of, you know, to go to do the infantry um, section commander's course. And I went to Dublin one night on the piss, which you're not meant to do. You're not meant to jump the border. But myself and another lad, we were into our music. I went, to, you know, an ocean colour scene we're playing. Um, of course. And so we 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 jumped the border down, went down to Dublin for the night. You know, not a, not with probably about sixty quid between us. So we were like, we're not even going to get a hotel. We could take our sleeping bags. We just sleep in the car. That you know, it's just stupid mentality at that age. And uh, and I, and I met someone. You know, at that concert who, you know, had since gone on to become my wife and my mother and my children, you know. So once I met her, it was always a sort of, I'm probably going to get out now, you know. So had you had you been thinking about, is it nine years in the army, start the first basic contract, yeah. is it? So were you thinking about extending it? Obviously, you've been tipped for promotion. Was there, before, before you met your wife, was there... Ambitions to, to stay in. And, oh yeah, yeah. No, I was twenty. I was a twenty-two year lad. I was. I wasn't going anywhere. No intention to getting out at all. I absolutely loved it. I loved my job. I particularly loved the rugby platoon. I, I just. I, it, it was. It was for me. You know that that was going to be. That was going to be for me. You know, get out when I'm I'm forty-two or whatever. Or and then you know didn't know what I was going to do after that. But it was. It was definitely me. That was. It, I was a career man. You know. But then when I met my wife, because she is from Dublin, she's a Republican, it it wouldn't have worked. You know, I couldn't, you know, she couldn't have come and live on the camp and me be away for six months a year. And, you know, the, there was already rumours that we were going back to Iraq. There was obviously, Afghanistan was coming up. They were also disbanding the Cheshire Regiment. Not disbanding it, they were amalgamating. Yeah, amalgamating, yeah. Yeah, to become the Mercian Regiment with the Staffordshire and Worcestershire Forest. There was a lot going on. I just thought maybe this is the time. I'm sort of young enough now to get out and, and start a, a sort of new career. Okay. Uh, and so I was like, no, nah, I'll throw throw it in. So you've got to give you 12 months notice. Sure. So how soon after you met your wife-to-be did you did you leave? Was it around 12 months or was it a little bit longer? In, better in December and I was living in Dublin by September. They let me go slightly earlier because I'd, I'd, I'd secured a job. So there was no point in sort of holding holding me back. So Okay. Which brings me nicely on to my next question. So when you put in, is it, is it a PVR in, in the army as well? Or yeah. just, was it just any was it was a It was a premature involuntary release, was it? Yeah. Right. yeah. So how long from 
something that paper do you start looking ahead to what you're going to do post army sort of straight away you know i was looking at oh will i will i do some sort of pti sort of fitness instructor when i get out will i you know will i do will it be a plumber or will i you know and it wasn't at the same time the royal irish home service were being disbanded so there was hundreds of courses going on across Northern Ireland to try and get these guys qualified for civilian life. And security course, a security manager's course sort of jumped out as, oh, you know, it, it, it fit within the budget of your resettlement. It was at Older, Older Grove in near, near Lisbon. And it, it, there was accommodation already on a military camp. It was, it kind of fit the, fit the bill of, of, being easy, I didn't have to go to the UK to do it or anything like that. Ever think of anything other than security? Like you resettlement, do you look do you look at a particular industry or trade and you think oh, I could do that before you settled on the on the security side? It was only really the fitness, the fitness one, becoming a, some sort of fitness instructor. But it would that have worked in Dublin? Could they have gone, oh, I'm an expert soldier and now I want to do fitness in Dublin? It, it had to be something that was kind of secure in in what I was doing as well because I was moving to I was moving to a new country, so I had to sort of sort out, you know, their equivalent to your NI. I had, you know, there was, you, you, not NI, yeah, your national not insurance. National insurance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to look at them sort of things, and I had to look at a way of how to advertise myself as a, you know, as what I did, what my qualifications are. And I could say I've been doing security for X amount of time without actually mentioning I was in the military because I had done, you know, you do mm -hmm. it's security in, it, as a sense. So it just it just fit the bill. So once once it was in my head that I was going to be a security manager, that was it, you know. There was no there was nothing thinking of anything else. So when you left uh, the army, so what was what do you can you remember what you feeling day one? So day one as a civilian, do you remember anything of the emotions or anything of, of the time? Apprehensive. Mm -hmm. I knew I had a job which was good. I'd already Sort of sorted out interviews and stuff like that while I was still in. I got myself a few days off to go down to Dublin and and I booked in a, a few interviews with the different different security companies. I got in with a company of guys who were ex Irish Army uh, or Irish Defence Force guys. Sort of once once I'd met them, it sort of clicked. You know what I mean? It was the same sort of banter and stuff like that. So I was like, all right, these these guys will do. And it was doing security on the the transport system so they don't have a transport police as such they have a private security company that sure. do it and um, so i was like that, that this was like the sort of thing for me a lot of them were ex-military either polish lithuanian or irish i was the only i was the only brit um within the group and then that first day yeah there was a lot of apprehension it was nice that it was done you know i got the, i got the train down from 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 belfast um yeah, it was it was a bit weird, you know. It it was like my army career was sort of flashing between before my eyes, you know, as I was in the taxi driving to the train station. Like like something like something out of a uh, a film or, or a movie, and you can pretty yeah, imagine, yeah. imagine if you played in the in the background. But obviously, and the and the, the song "Chasing Cars" was was playing. <laughs> Every time I hear that song, it's like that's my that's my leaving the army song. You know. So when you then starting your job as a security manager. How long did it take you? Or it might, it might not change at all. How long did it take you going from the army mindset of acronyms and and speaking the, the army slang into like a normal 
what I call a normal civilian language. Or, I know for me, I know for me, it took me probably about six months to a year before I stopped asking people what the gen was or talking in in, in acronyms in, in general. I probably still do it now, you know. <laughs> I still say to, to Roger that, you know, whatever. Yeah. I initially didn't have a security manager job; it was just a normal security guard because they were all sort of military as well. It, it was quite still a lot the same, the same language. Still a lot. Yeah, same. they used a lot of acronyms and stuff like that. They're like their uniform system wasn't great. So I was like, I'll come in on a Tuesday and, and sort this out for you, you know? And then they were like, oh, here's a few extra quid. And so I was like, oh, right. It, it, that mindset of I now have to work hours to earn money rather than it's just paid into the bank, you know? So I was trying to get extra hours. They quickly sort of I got promoted to like a, a duty supervisor looking after like a section of, of, of the track and on the south side of Dublin. So it was quite good, you know, I, could, I, mm-hmm. I fit in quite well. But the chances of them promoting to the manager's job, which I wanted, was looking, you know, there was no positions available and it didn't look like there would be for a while. So after about nine months, I was like, mm, I need to I need to start looking at, you know. Yeah, because I, I found, a couple of things I found, when I left the RAF, I found the transition quite difficult because I'd gone from mum and dad's house into this bubble of the armed forces left that bubble, and suddenly I was paying things like gas rates, water rates, council tax, stuff I'd never paid, or I probably have paid council tax like 20 pence a month or whatever it was, but stuff I'd never even thought about. And suddenly yeah. now, i got to look after myself. No one else no one else is looking after me. And yeah, you know, I had exactly the same thing where I was quite lucky, obviously, uh, my partner obviously grew up in Dublin and knew how it worked, but there isn't a council tax system. You look, you go to the shop and you buy tags for your bin that you put in your bin okay. for, them, for them to pick them up and take them away. Things like that I didn't know about. I didn't know about paying sort of national insurance. Um, it, it was a it was a massive, like electric bills, internet bills. You're like, wow, this is there's a lot to sort of think about. And at the end of it, what, I've only got this much? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, this is, this is a bit tough. But then talking about the job, see there for nine months, I found in my first couple of jobs, I was always looking how to move up the ladder because I was so used yeah. to that. I was so used to you'd be in a role for a certain number of years and then you'd be pushed up a, a rank, you know. And I found so I did security when I left and I found it difficult to deal with my immediate supervisors because they weren't ex military. And I think you're taught to think in a certain way in, in the military. You, you you approach situations a little bit differently. It's not so sort of linear. You know, you can look around different solutions to different problems. Yeah. And I've I found being stuck in what potentially could be the same role, doing exactly the same thing for a number of years, it did not appeal to me because I wanted to have some kind of progress over over the years. So when yeah. did you then? Did you then leave that company to get a, another job? Yeah. So I left that company and I, and, I, and I took a jump then of, a, of an extra sort of four euros an hour um, to work for another company in their control room. Which was um, which was then shift work two days two nights four off. I was like, oh, I got really got into a routine. Then there were twelve hour shifts, and it was monitoring alarm systems. So, you know, you had to be polite and courteous and speak to people on the phone, and you had to. You, there was problem solving invo- involved, and you had to deal with the the guard of Chicano over there, you know, their version of the police, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, oh, I fit in. It was a group of of, of lads. You know what I mean? None of them were ex-military, but they had a good vibe about them. We all sort of kind of got on well. There was a little bit of bitching, but there's a little bit of bitching everywhere. 
and it was for a good sort of company as well. They were Ireland's largest private security company. So it was like I'd, I'd sort of found, found and there was chances of progression as well. So I was like, right, if, I, if I'm digging here and work hard, there's a chance I can sort of kind of get promoted. And within a year, they came to me and said, look, we've got a assistant operations manager's job available. Would you like to apply for it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, why not? You know? Um, so did you find, mention there, that none of the other guys were ex-military? Do, do you find that they look to you a different way because of your military background or you're just one of the guys? Yeah, they did. Certainly once I learned the systems, when there was a big problem or there was a difficult customer, they'd sort of kind of look to me to say, can you just step in here and, you know, take this one on? Because, you know, if a customer's effing and blinded, they'd either go one way where they get really irate or they get really mute and I wouldn't know what to say. Whereas I could I could keep that level tone of, of just being able to just deal with the, the actual situation and come up with a solution and not over over expect their expectations i wouldn't give them timings of when this would be sorted you know just little things that you knew you couldn't do mm. from even in the northern island or iraq like i knew how to just keep a level head and deal with the deal with the problem um, and i think that's one of the reasons they sort of kind of looked at me when, when the promotion come about because the guys within that control room were starting to come to me to, to deal with issues and problems Excellent. So when did you leave Dublin and come back to the UK? So obviously when, when I first moved there, there was the Celtic Tiger. There was a lot of money, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, I'd been in the the manager's role for about a year and a bit. And then the sort of economy took a nosedive. They couldn't afford that extra manager anymore. So they were looking at, you know, redundancies and stuff like that. I went back into the control room for a while just to keep a job. And then me and my wife decided, no, it's, you know, maybe would there be better opportunities in Wales? You know, we could go over, move in with my mum for a bit and then look for opportunities there. By which time we had a son as well. So it was a, it was a big choice. Mary, Mary had always lived in Dublin her whole life. You know what I mean? It was going to be a massive decision for her, whereas I'd travelled all over. So it's, you know, yeah. it wasn't anything new for me. So... It was 2011 then that we decided, you know, uh, and it was very sort of sudden, right, we're doing it and we're, we're sort of doing it now. Let's pack up for what we're going. I suppose for you, that's probably not a big deal because you're used to just packing bags and, and going or drop the hat. I suppose yeah. for your wife, like I said, you've been a homegirl, Dublin, all her life. Now she's being asked to pack a bag and potentially not see her friend's family for, you know, for an extended period of time. So it must have been difficult for her to to yeah, that, that, yeah, move, yeah. that transition from Dublin to, to Wales. Um, yeah, no, and, 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 you know, I really do sort of thank her for, you know, for that, you know, how she, she sort of took that on, you know. She didn't shy away from what, what we had to do and what it meant. And, she, you know, though the first couple of months, probably first couple of years were quite hard for her, she sort of settled into sort of life in Wales. And how long now have you been doing the role you do now? How long have you been doing this? Six role? years I've been in, in this, with this company I'm with now. I'd, I'd done a couple of jobs. So I, would, I went to a windows factory to make windows. Didn't That's a little, bit of, a little bit of a tangent. Yeah, I went to uh, a recovery company, uh, do vehicle recoveries for like the AA and the RAC. That didn't really work out. 
wasn't working a lot in your room for that, were you? Or yeah, well, I was in there. I was in there, sort of control room, but it was just one person, you know, controlling the vehicles where they were going, picking people up, dealing with it. You know, always went back to sort of dealing with irate customers who were sat at the side of the road, and I was able to sort of deal with the problems and the issues, and you know, got sort of known as the person to sort of go to if there was a customer. Yeah, the, uh, the conflict resolution guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't worry, Mark will deal with it. Like, you know, or just transfer the call to Mark. He'll, you know, he'll he'll sort that out. And then we've seen an opportunity for, my wife actually spotted it for an operations manager at a security company, applied for it and, and, and got it, you know. So I was then with that company for about 18 months. They're based in Cardiff. They're a sort of smaller, two, two million turnover sort of company. They're based in... Pentwin? No, Lambie Way. They uh, were, okay, yeah. Not what I think you <laughs> Went from there... I seen an opportunity for sort of or wanted an opportunity for a bigger company, you know, where it was chance of promotions and, and that's where where I'm with now. So I've been here six years, you know, before this pandemic, traveled all over the country. Again, sort of the conflict resolution guy, big contracts with sort of like supermarkets and big logistic companies and universities and stuff like that. So a sort of much bigger company, much bigger footprint more more challenges but also greater reward for for the work that you do awesome and which brings you up nicely now to the podcast so you host the the broken veteran podcast how yeah. did that how did that start and you know what's the, the sort of the main purpose yeah so we we, we you see it in the news regularly obviously um you hear about well you don't actually see it as much as probably sure but you know veterans sort of passing away and and, and stuff like that and I'd, I'd seen a couple of mates go that way and i just thought is there a way you know i could get it out there i did i done a, a couple of episodes of a podcast with my son we done like a, a little thing just i wanted you know to be in tune with him and what he was doing and what he was thinking and stuff like that. So we, we, we had a little go at it. It didn't really work out, but I thought, okay, I know how to do it. You know what I mean? I know how to make a podcast. I know how to get it sent to all the sort of the different locations. So let me just try this, this veteran thing. So I've done a, a sort of four episodes on my own. It was like, all right, the people are probably just sick of me just waffling on now. So I brought Stuart Davis, who's the next world fusilier in. He's, you know, he's, going to marry my sister, he's going to be my brother-in-law, we've known each other for years, we were in around the same time, we've got the same sort of interests and stuff like that, so he's, he come aboard as well, and it's sort of kind of grown, grown from there, we, we, we talk about military history, but we also talk about, like last week's, last week's one was about military movies, and so, it's, so it's quite, it's quite varied, but an element of sort of the banter that you respect while being we we try and always link it back to sort of mental health in some way how to support mental health we look at charities out there we've had people from different charities come on and talk to us we've had people who've had mental you know um, issues with sort of ptsd come on and have a chat about it and how they got through it we talk about how we get through sort of mental health issues and stuff like that and depression and, and and stuff so we we always trying to link it back to that that mental health aspect, well, well, you know whatever way we can. And I was um, looking, sorry, sorry to cut you off, Mark. Yeah. I was looking because I knew the podcast. I've obviously listened to some of it, 
And as part of the research for this particular recording, I looked at some stats. Now, between 2000 and 2019, there were 306 suicides from armed forces or armed forces veterans, which is like 16 a year. Yeah. Last year, 2020, there was 84. So we're looking at 17 serving members and 67 veterans. That's like one every almost four days. Now, yeah. more must be able to be done because obviously something isn't happening where, you know, and we talked about, we spoke about when using Iraq, about that, that attitude of just suck it up. Do you think this is still uh, a part of what's happening, that the, these men and women are in an environment or they've been in an environment where they just been told, look, just man up and and get and get over it? And do you think this is playing a, a big part in, the, you know, this 84 in a year? You know? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think we're probably on that for last year, you know, last year as well, it was probably around the 80 mark. And I know, you know, on a lot of the military groups, there's 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 two pieces of people missing at the moment. You know what I mean? And that's sometimes how it happens. The you know, I, I another friend who you know from from a company that was in that we we lost last year, and he, he went missing, and then was found two days later. You know, it's the yeah, there is a there is a mindset of suck it up, and that's what we try and say. You know, there's there is groups, there's people. There's, there's organizations out there who want to help, and they're usually veterans. They're usually veterans who've lost someone when I don't want to lose another one. Yeah, because uh, I'm a member of the All Points, is it? All Call Point, All? All Call Signs. All Call Signs, yes. And like I said, you see every other week, maybe, of someone who's. There's one today. Yeah. One today. And, you know, it's. And you see the comments. People, these are people who are served. You don't even know this person, but the comments yeah. are positivity and, and just the. The um, asked, you know, there are people who can help, and yeah. what can, what can the military and the, the, the you know, the, the MOD do better to, to stop, you know, to reduce or even stop what's what's going on? Is there anything they can do? Or yeah, I think uh, if it was built into the resettlement, then maybe, uh, you know, a veteran goes in and talks to us. We could even, I think, they could even look at buddy buddy systems. So when someone gets out, they get paired up with a veteran who may have been out for a few years, you know, and I'm sure veterans would volunteer to do this just to be on the end of the phone. How do you pay your council tax? How do you, how do you sort that out? In the, there's that, there's, there's plenty of charities that sort of do that um, already, but it's not, you, you've got to go and find it yourself. Whereas if the military were pushing you to do that, like, if you were in that mindset, you've been there since 16, you're now what, 25, 30, mm -hmm. getting out. Uh, and here you go. Here's, here's someone who will, here's someone who will guide you through, you know, through your resettlement. And then maybe one or two years after you're being out or even go and, you know, have veterans and let them go and visit these people and make sure that they're doing all right. Uh, a lot of times people put on the front and say, yeah, I'm fine. Or, you know, positive Facebook posts about they're doing this, doing that, and then they're going home and, and they're not all right, you know? So social media can help, but also it can also help to mask, mask the issues at hand. Yeah. I know for me personally, when I left the, the Royal Air Force, I was in a real, it was a real struggle for me because I was suddenly on my own and the only person to look after me was me. And I remember the British Legion, I don't know how they found me, but they did. And they reached out to me and they offered me support. They, they gave me money. They they bought me new appliances for my kitchen, and yeah. 
but I still pay my 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 British Legion membership now, and I will now for, until the rest of my life because it's twenty pound a year, and they could take a hundred pound off me if they wanted to. But yeah. talking about British Legion, I don't think people are aware that it's not just about World War Two or World War One. British Legion are helping veterans of, of all ages from 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 all services. But when we go back to the MOD, so we, I think resettlement is probably the, the key here. Is that they need to be given information to the men and women who are leaving. That's going to help them, not just your, 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 your learning credits. These are the courses you can do, you know, crack on and make yeah, your own way. We'll show, you to, we'll show you how to write a CV and, and send you on your way. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, more more could be done there. You know, it doesn't have to be much. It could be a one-day, a two-day, three-day course where you, they get veterans in who, who answer the questions that, you know, or... or tell them the questions that they may not even want to know they may not even know they may not even realize they need to know and it would be veterans who've been out for a few years you know even as long as you know we've been out you just go in and, and say right this is how you do this this is you know this, they're going to take this much off you for in some companies or make sure that you're getting paid the living wage and stuff like that and so don't just get, basically you know, don't get credit cards because in, in yeah. the army getting credit was easy. You know what I mean? No, yeah. don't don't go there with me with, with credit cards. Yeah. I turned eighteen and suddenly I was getting all these offers. I'm like, yeah, give me a you know twenty five percent credit card. Give me a higher purchase and, and yeah, it's like you said. I think when you when you're in that bubble, you don't think about anything. There's nothing to think about. You just you just go into work. You're doing your job. Come back to your block room and repeat. You know, and yeah. and that's all. It come get paid end of month. Your food's already been paid for. The accommodations have been paid for, so everything in the bank is yours to you know to pee up the wall basically. You know, and and that's what I did for probably ten years. But Mark, listen, it's been great chatting to you. And if people need to find you and your stuff you do, where's where's where are they looking? Where do they go? Yeah, so the podcast, the Broken Veteran Podcast, is on you know Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you know wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, we're also on. Um, uh, Facebook, the Broken Veteran Podcast on Facebook, uh, Instagram, the Broken Veteran Podcast. And if you need any sort of information or any more, you know, support or looking for places to go, email, email us at thebrokenveteran at gmail.com. You know, we will send over information on that. Uh, awesome. Are there any plans? DM us if you, you know, if you have any questions. Excellent. Well, Mark, it's been great to chat to you. And I look forward to listening to more episodes of the Broken Veteran. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's been brilliant to chat to you. And uh, well, thank you. Cheers, Carl. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye.